This episode is brought to you by Estellas Oncology. Estellas Oncology is changing the course of cancer treatment. With a world-class team of medical, clinical, and scientific experts, Estellas Oncology is driving innovation and collaboration to redefine what's possible for those impacted by hard-to-treat cancers. Learn more at estellasoncology.com. This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Except for skin cancer, prostate cancer is the most common malignancy in males. One in eight men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer during his lifetime, and most of them are over the age of 65. If diagnosed early, treatment is quite effective and results in a very favorable survival rate. Several very effective treatment options are now available for patients, and in today's podcast, we'll discuss these various treatments and what patients can expect following each option. We'll review how a post-prostate cancer patient should be followed by their primary care provider and when there might be reason for concern of a recurrence. My guest is Dr. Scott Cheney, a urologist from the Mayo Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Welcome, Scott, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Before we talk about the different treatment options, I'd like you to explain the grading system. That's always confused me a little bit. So why don't you explain this uh, Gleason scoring system we have for grading prostate cancer? Sure. So the Gleason score was first developed by a doctor at the VA Medical Center in Minneapolis, Donald Gleason. He developed it in the mid-1960s to 1970s. And it's a way of reporting the architecture of the glands, the cells under the microscope, as a way to communicate to doctors and other pathologists what they're seeing. It's typically reported as two numbers that are added together. So you'll hear a Gleason score like Gleason 3 plus 3 equals 6. You might refer to it as the total, so Gleason 6, Gleason 7. But what the numbers refer to is each number is graded from 1 to 5. And 5 is a more aggressive appearing gland under the microscope, whereas 1 is a very fairly normal looking gland under the microscope. The first number that you see in the Gleason score is the most common type of gland that the pathologist saw on the specimen. If it's all one type of gland, it's reported as the same number, such as 3 plus 3, 4 plus 4, or 5 plus 5. This is important because the first number tells you a lot about the dominant type of cancer that's there. This is most important for intermediate grade prostate cancers, which are grade 3 plus 4 and 4 plus 3. What that means is Gleason 3 plus 4 has a better prognosis and a better outcome than Gleason 4 plus 3 because they saw more pattern 4 on that specimen than pattern 3. It's also important to reassure patients because each number goes from 1 to 5, this has led to some confusion about about the scoring system. Nowadays, we really only see Gleason 3 plus 3 as the lowest grade of prostate cancer that will be reported. This means that when patients see Gleason 6 cancers, they think, oh my gosh, I've got an intermediate middle of the ground prostate cancer, and they worry. Whereas in in reality, that's about the lowest grade of prostate cancer that we see. Most pathologists nowadays will not look at an individual pattern one or two. 
they will simply report it as Gleason three, four, or five for each of those numbers. Well, Scott, that's probably the best explanation I've heard for a Gleason scoring system, so thank you. Let's talk about the survival rate for patients with prostate cancer based on their grade and extent of disease at their diagnosis. Again, when I see a, a patient for prostate cancer, the first thing that I want to do is reassure them that this cancer is not like a lot of other cancers that you see. The 10-year survival rate, if you take all comers with prostate cancer, is 97%, which is an astoundingly high number. When you look at other types of cancers, such as kidney cancer, pancreatic cancer, bladder cancer, none of those cancers have a similar survival rate. So it's my job to reassure patients that we're looking at a very long-term outcome for these patients. When you're looking at the survival rates between different grades and stages, it's important to see that the higher the Gleason score, the worse the survival. So a Gleason 8, 9, or 10 prostate cancer has a much poorer survival than a Gleason 6 or a, even a Gleason 7 prostate cancer. The same goes for the local aggressiveness of cancer as well. About 80 to 90% of prostate cancers will be diagnosed as clinically localized disease nowadays. This is very different from how it was in the 1970s before we had PSA. PSA has led us to detect prostate cancers at a much earlier stage. So we're seeing it when it's clinically localized and can be cured for the most part. When prostate cancer is clinically localized, there's a very, very high likelihood of cure with treatment such as radiation or prostate cancer. When patients are diagnosed with metastatic disease, which occurs in about 10 to 15% of initially diagnosed prostate cancer patients, it's really not curable and the survival is on the range of three to five years. Well, we now have a variety of very good treatment options for prostate cancer. Can you review those and maybe why one might be recommended over another? Sure, I'd be happy to. So the first thing I, I tell patients is one of the options that we have is active surveillance. When the PSA testing became much more common, urologists in general started over-treating prostate cancer. We treated every prostate cancer that came in the door. And this meant that we were giving patients the side effects of treatment such as radiation or surgery, radical prostatectomy, when that prostate cancer wasn't really going to even harm them during their lifetime. And so one of the thing, things that has developed is we place a lot of patients on active surveillance. And what that means is just what the, the words say, it, and that is that we follow their cancer very closely and we intervene if the cancer becomes more aggressive over time. What this translates to is that a lot of Gleason 3 plus 3 and 3 plus 4 prostate cancers will be watched over time, and they'll be checked with PSA, periodic biopsy, periodic MRIs, and prostate exams. So that's option number one, and that's used generally for low-risk, low-grade prostate cancers with a PSA that's not very high. The two established options for treatment of prostate cancer are surgery and radiation. Surgery typically is done using the da Vinci robot, and it's called robot-assisted radical prostatectomy. And in this treatment, we place laparoscopic ports and attach the robot to the patient. And then the surgeon controls the robot, and we remove the prostate and the surrounding lymph nodes for that patient. With radiation, this comes in many different flavors. Traditionally, it's photon therapy, so using energy to blast the prostate. This can also be used with proton therapy, which is relatively new, which we have at Mayo Clinic. 
and also brachytherapy where radioactive seeds are placed into the prostate. Now, the decision for how to treat any particular patient um, depends on a lot of factors. In my practice, generally, I think of treating healthier and younger patients with surgery because when you operate first, you can radiate later if there is a recurrence, whereas the alternative is not true. If you radiate a patient, then that really takes away surgery as a good option for those patients. Yes, it's possible to do a salvage prostatectomy after radiation, but the complication rate is really high. The incontinence rate for surgery after radiation is about 50%, and the erectile dysfunction rate is, is virtually 100%. And so generally, older and less healthy patients with more comorbidities, I'm going to try to steer them towards radiation, whereas younger, healthier patients, I try to steer them towards surgery. There's no particular number cutoff to look at. For me, it's generally 65 to 68 and younger and healthy. I try to steer them towards surgery, although radiation is also a good option for those patients. Whereas patients who are maybe 70 to 75 and above, I really try to steer those patients towards radiation. The reason for this is that they don't have as long of a life expectancy to incur a recurrence of their prostate cancer. So radiation is just as likely to cure prostate cancer as surgery in the first 10 years after the treatment. So if you only have 10 to 15 years of life expectancy left, then radiation is a good option. Whereas a younger patient, say 50 to 55, they've got potentially a 20 to 30 year life expectancy. I think surgery is a better option because it keeps other options open for them if they have a recurrence in the future. I imagine hormonal therapy or chemotherapy are reserved for those patients who have more advanced disease. Correct. Hormone therapy is where we will give patients drugs that will reduce their natural production of testosterone. We know that testosterone feeds prostate cancer and promotes prostate cancer growth. We've found over the years that when you deprive prostate cancer of testosterone, that it will become significantly less aggressive and slow it down significantly. I call testosterone gasoline on the, on the fire of prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. And so um, giving a patient hormone therapy will oftentimes assist in the treatment of prostate cancer, but it won't itself cure prostate cancer. So we really never give hormone therapy by itself or rarely give hormone therapy by itself. There have been very important randomized trials in radiation that we found that when we give hormone therapy in addition to radiation, that improves the overall survival of that patient significantly. So that's why it's standard of care to give hormone therapy in addition to radiation. Chemotherapy, as you said, is also used for advanced disease. So this is metastatic disease. And sometimes we'll even give neoadjuvant chemohormonal therapy before we do surgery. And this might be a, a very aggressive looking tumor, at least an eight, nine, or 10 tumor that's locally advanced. And we wanna to try to shrink the tumor and treat it before we actually do surgery. So in some cases we're giving that chemo and hormone therapy beforehand. I wanted to mention a couple of other treatment options that you might hear about, such as cryotherapy, where we freeze the prostate, high intensity focused ultrasound, where we deliver ultrasound energy to the prostate to treat a focal area of the prostate. Prostate cancer tends to be a multifocal disease process, and this means that it occurs in multiple different parts of the prostate. So you might have prostate cancer in one area of the prostate, 
and you treat that area, but then it might recur in a, in a separate area. For those very few patients that have just a focal area in the prostate that has cancer, you can see it on MRI. That's the only place that they have cancer. Focal therapy may be a reasonable option for those patients. However, you have to keep in mind the patient's overall survival and the likelihood of recurrence. And I think in a majority of cases, you really should treat the entire prostate gland with either surgery or radiation. Okay. Well, let's talk about what patients can expect following the various types of treatment. And we'll start with the uh, robot-assisted surgical prostatectomy. Erectile dysfunction, how common is that? And what are the treatment options that you have now? I call radical prostatectomy or robot-assisted radical prostatectomy, I call it pay it forward because you take a hit up front from the treatment and that is incurred with both erectile dysfunction and incontinence. I tell every patient that I operate on to expect erectile dysfunction. It's very inconvenient because the nerves that serve the, the penis and give an erection are hugging right on the outside of the prostate. So when I want to spare a patient's nerves, I have to basically peel those nerves off of the prostate. And when I spare nerves on both sides of the prostate, I tell patients, I quote patients about 60 to 70% of patients can get usable erections back after the surgery. If I spare nerves only on one side, about 30 to 40% of patients will get it back. And if I don't spare nerves at all, then virtually no patients will get it back. It's important to make a good decision for your patient before you operate. You don't want to leave any cancer behind. And when you spare those nerves and peel those nerves off the prostate, you're more likely to leave cancer behind. So if you've got a patient with a really aggressive cancer on one side, you might do a unilateral nerve spare on the opposite side. And the more nerves that you spare, the more likely patients are to get erectile dysfunction. It might take a year to 18 months for those nerves to kind of regenerate and start working again. And so patients can't expect to get their erections back right away. And I have to be a cheerleader for my patients and say, just keep on waiting. It'll, it'll get better. And we have other options to treat it if it doesn't come back on its own. So for erectile dysfunction in particular, the first thing I do is I put them on erectile rehabilitation therapy. What that means is I start them on a daily five milligram Cialis or Tadalafil, which you can get generically over the counter or generically for about 10 to $20 for a 90 day supply. I start with that and I also have them purchase a vacuum erection device, which essentially suctions air out of a chamber and pulls blood into the penis. And then they can use a restriction band around the base of the penis to keep that blood in the penis to use for intercourse. Uh, some patients don't like that option and they want something more. The next step beyond those ther therapies is to do penile injection therapy with a medication called Trimix that actually induces an erection. The, the man will inject the penis with this medication and it induces an erection within a few minutes. And ultimately, if nothing works for their erections, then we will oftentimes offer to place a penile prosthesis where an inflatable chamber is placed in, into the penis with a small pump in the scrotum and a reservoir of fluid in the pelvis. And the patient can on demand pump up the penis and use it um, whenever they want to. The other important side effect of surgery to consider is incontinence. This is also very, very common. I, I tell patients to expect it. I tell patients to wear a pad. They'll have to wear a full depend at first, and then they gradually improve with time. The numbers that I quote for patients is that about 90 to 95% of patients will be happy 
where they're at at one year out from surgery. And what I mean by they're happy is that they will either not be using pads or they'll be using a small security liner just in case they leak a little bit if they cough a certain way or lift a heavy object, but they're not leaking so much that they really feel like they need something else done. Most patients will get it back. About five to 10% of patients will need something else done, whether it's an artificial sphincter that can be placed around the, the urethra and, and can be used with a pump in the scrotum, or a sling, which um, buttresses the urethra a little bit for patients with kind of minor incontinence. It's also very important, especially for the primary care doctor who's also seeing these patients, to remind patients that it's important to do Kegel exercises where they strengthen the pelvic floor muscles in order to help hold, hold urine back. I have my patients do two sets of 10 repetitions per day where they hold that muscle for 10 seconds and they relax for 10 seconds. And I tell them to hold the muscle like they'd try to stop themselves from passing gas. That helps them to understand what muscle to, to squeeze. I've also described it in the past as trying to stop yourself from urinating, but using that muscle, but patients get confused and they, they actually try to stop mm -hmm. themselves from peeing, uh, which can, can have some detrimental effects on the bladder. I've seen a fair amount of reversibility of the stress incontinence, especially in those who do the pelvic floor exercises. So that, uh, that is very effective. All right, let's turn to radiation therapy. What can one expect following that? One of the important things, again, to note is that patients will need to go on hormone therapy in addition to the radiation. And I would argue that the hormone therapy is probably going to give them more symptoms than the radiation it will itself. And the side effects of that hormone therapy are typically hot flashes, also a loss of energy. It can sometimes lead to a loss of libido uh, and can even affect erectile dysfunction. But typically, once they stop the hormone therapy, those symptoms will improve with time. The symptoms of the actual radiation, it will typically cause some irritation to some of the surrounding organs, which is one of the downsides of radiation. So the typical organs that get affected are the base of the bladder the bulb of the penis, and the rectum. And what this translates to is some irritative urinary symptoms from the bladder where they get frequency and urgency of, of using the restroom. That will usually start within about two to three weeks of, of starting radiation and will go away about two months after finishing radiation. The same thing goes for rectal symptoms. They might have some rectal urgency and even diarrhea that, again, peaks at, at about two to three weeks after starting radiation and typically goes away about two months after radiation. The risk of long-term side effects of, of long-term diarrhea and, and rectal symptoms, as well as long-term urinary symptoms, is only about 5% or less. In those on hormonal therapy, what should a primary care provider be watching for in the future? Anything of concern there? it's important to look at patients' overall energy levels and how they're tolerating it. One thing that, that can sometimes counteract those effects is something like megase that, that you could put a patient on uh, that will sometimes actually cause weight gain but will improve their overall energy levels. The other thing to consider is bone health. And patients on hormone therapy will reduce their bone density by about three to 6% per year as long as they're on the hormone ablation. So I think it's important to do um, DEXA scans and monitor the bone health of those patients. It's also important to have them on calcium and vitamin D while they're on this therapy as well to maintain bone health. 
In patients who have been treated for prostate cancer, eventually they're going to be uh, transferred to their primary care provider. When is this transfer likely to happen? When should we pick up the care of these patients? Yeah, I would say in general, most urologists will follow their prostate cancer patients for about five years. Mm -hmm. This includes checking the PSA more frequently early on after surgery or after radiation, typically every three to six months at first. Then we transition to every six months during, I'd say, years two to five. And eventually we transition to once yearly PSA. And I would say by year five, we will oftentimes transition the patient back to their PCP. And I would recommend that the PCP check the PSA once per year. The PSA can sometimes be confusing afterwards. It should typically be undetectable after a radical prostatectomy. If it becomes detectable, then you need to start thinking about trending that PSA over time and seeing how quickly it goes up. That's called the doubling time. And you might check the PSA every three months while you're watching what happens. If the PSA stays the same at a very low level, then oftentimes patients will have some benign tissue that might be left over after the prostatectomy, and that's not threatening to them. Whereas patients who have prostate cancer left over, their PSA will start to go up. And if the PSA goes up with a doubling time of less than one year, that's a more threatening rise in the PSA. That patient should be referred back to their urologist and probably to a radiation oncologist to potentially get salvage radiation. Following the PSA after radiation therapy is a little bit more difficult because the prostate is still there. And we have many different ways of looking at PSA recurrence after radiation, but the typical way is with the Phoenix criteria, where the PSA will go down to a nadir level, a valley level after radiation. And if the PSA goes two nanograms per deciliter higher than that, that is the definition of a recurrence after radiation. And that patient should probably have an MRI and a repeat prostate biopsy, and also be referred back to the, the urologist. Okay. Well, Scott, you've given us a lot of useful information on how to follow the patient who has been treated for prostate cancer. Can you summarize our discussion with maybe uh, two or three key points? Sure. Firstly, prostate cancer is incredibly common. 270,000 men are diagnosed each year with prostate cancer. However, there are only 34,000 deaths per year. This is 2022 numbers. So patients should be reassured when they have prostate cancer that it is very treatable, and for the most part, it can be curable if it's found at a localized level within the prostate. Even when prostate cancer is metastatic, it can still be treated, and we try to turn it into a chronic disease that's not going to kill them within five years. So that's point number one. Point number two is that there are two generally accepted treatments for prostate cancer, and that's radiation and surgery for those prostate cancers that need to be treated. And there are some prostate cancers that are low grade, low volume, and low risk, and those can be observed with active surveillance. Patients need to be reassured that no matter what you do, the 10-year survival for prostate cancer is incredibly high, almost to, to 100%. And so patients should know that they are probably not going to die within five years of their prostate cancer. And lastly, I think it's important to follow prostate cancer patients for life. And this includes getting a PSA once yearly for those patients who have no evidence of disease and escalating with more frequent PSAs, potentially with imaging such as an MRI or a PSMA PET scan and referral back to a urologist 
if there is a rise in PSA after their treatment. We've been discussing the management of the post-prostate cancer patient with Dr. Scott Cheney, a urologist from the Mayo Clinic. Scott, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. This was a great discussion. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.